2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel 1. We are, if you haven't been with us, we are moving through the books of First and Second Samuel. And uh, I've entitled this series just simply Samuel Insights. And what we're trying to do is fly over these somewhat rather large historical books and see the big things. I mean, you know how it is. You've, you've flown over certain cities, maybe Chicago or maybe Atlanta. most of us have been to Atlanta if you've flown in the air at all, right? And you, and you see parts of Atlanta, right? You, you don't see a lot of the details, but you see the big things. And that's what we're trying to do in this flyover. We're not landing and kind of studying each individual tree of the forest, but rather we're seeing some of the rhythms within this uh, unified work of Samuel, both one and two. And so we've kind of, uh, at least I have, I don't know if you're playing along with me or not, but we're kind of seeing this as episodes, right? And and so now we're on S2, uh, episodes one through five, all right? So that's uh, season two, and episodes one through five, we're going to look at, we're going to look at the first uh, really, five chapters here of uh, of Samuel, and so I don't know if we have one of those um, voiceover guys, you know, that do it. But it's like you watch some of these shows. It's like previously on Samuel. You know what I mean? <laughs> Anybody familiar with that? Like previously on Samuel, uh, a lot of people died, right? So that's um, we'll, we'll jump into that in just a moment. Notice, I want to just begin here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of skip around. So if you'll if you'll have a scripture. Ready there, it should be on your row. Notice 2 Samuel 1 and then 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Jump over to 17. Again, we're flying over. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he gives that lamentation. 2, 1. After this, David inquired of Yahweh, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. And then drop down to 3.1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And then 4.1, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. And then chapter 5, we heard last week, but then notice 1, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and behold, they said, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us. Out and brought in Israel, and the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before Yahweh, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel. 
and Judah 33 years. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray now that Holy Spirit who inspired these very words, that you would teach us from them, we pray in your name. Amen. As we're gathering, uh, you know, you kind of are looking down sometimes from a plane and you can't quite, it's hard to know exactly where you are sometimes. You ever tried to like guess where you are? You know, we recently we went to in Mexico, I, I'm like, you know, I think that's, I think that's Jackson, Mississippi, you know, and I'm like looking, I'm trying to like look out the window and of course you can't quite see, you know, ex- right down and, I, and, I, and it actually was Jackson, Mississippi. And then I saw the you know, Mississippi River. And so one of the things I want to make sure that we're seeing, I'm saying, hey, come over here in this seat, look down here and look at this, is this idea. Saul and David both have a similar track that's represented in both 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. In 9 through 12 of 1 Samuel is the rise of King Saul, the very first king of Israel. Then, 13 through 15, is his disobedience. So if we're looking at it, you go up, you plateau in disobedience, and then the decline happens from 16 to 31, which is what we recounted last week. Then you get King David. Again, this is a big view of the whole thing now. And his rise takes place really from 1 Samuel 16... He's rising slowly, and then he begins to plateau in a future episode, and then his decline will be the rest of the book. It's very fascinating that it's in keeping with the motifs that we've been tracking, which is disobedience equals cursing, obedience equals blessing, which is the message of Deuteronomy. Well, Eli, Samuel... And Saul are dead. One character remains, David. And what we have here at the beginning of 2 Samuel, as we uh, are sort of recounting here, catching ourselves up on the episode, the first few chapters really are a transition of power. And notice, we've been talking about this, there's been a lot of transition in Samuel. Samuel itself is a transitional book. Samuel himself is a transitional person. And there's more transition. There's a transition of power now right here at the beginning of this episode of the first five chapters. The remaining survivors of the house of Saul are still hanging around. That's always an issue when you're becoming king, isn't it? They still have some regal heritage to the throne... And so these are mainly being held together by a guy named Abner, which was sort of the right-hand man of the king, of King Saul. Um, The Philistines are not any longer just a raiding group, kind of coming in and uh, almost like a gnat. Initially, they're they're just more like a gnat. They're swatting them away. Now they're becoming a powerhouse that wants to put Israel into submission. And so that's part of the lay of the land. And not only that... There's this struggle between both north and south. If you've read the historical books before, you're familiar with how Israel can be quite a few things. It can be a people. It can be a place. It also is the northern kingdom. It's also another person, Jacob. So there's quite a bit that's attached to Israel. 
But in particular here, there's a struggle between north and south. Uh, part of it's geographical. Part of it, I think, is just sort of a north-south. There's a line, right? <laughs> we kind of feel that line. Oh, yeah, well, he's from up north, and we excuse certain things, right? Or he's from the south, you know, bless his heart, right? That's a very southern thing to say, you know. What an idiot. That's basically what that means if, if nobody knows. So, so tra- somebody says, bless his heart. That's not a, that's not a petting thing. That's, that's kind of like, oh, well, what a doofus. Um, and so there's these differences between both north and south. Judah, as the scripture primarily calls the southern kingdom, and Israel, as it primarily calls the northern kingdom. And, of course, the kingdom is united at this point, but it unites truly under David. And it stays united under Solomon, but then will fail. And there will be this civil war and contention between them all the rest of their days after Solomon. Of course, the northern kingdom never has any good kings. The southern kingdom, interestingly enough, only has one house ever to rule there, and it's David's house. That's pretty amazing, by the way. We're talking about 350 years, roughly, of, a, of one household ruling. And you name another kingdom like that in history. You can be hard-pressed to do that. So the northern kingdom is erased eventually. But now uh, there's this war between the two. Saul's up north. Remember, before he dies, David's down south fighting the Amalekites. He now gets word that Saul is dead. Um, And so remember the purpose of these books. These books are asking a larger question. They operate within the scripture, in particular within the Old Testament, drilled down into the historical books. They operate in this transitional way of bringing us from a confederacy, just these loose tribes that are trying to make it in the promised land, to now a kingdom that is recognized on the world scene. So one one of the purposes here is, how did Israel become a kingdom? If you don't have Samuel, you don't have that transition. And then the other underlying question is, what kind of kingdom is it? Is it a kingdom like other kingdoms? Or is it a kingdom that points to another kingdom? Which I think is the ultimate point here within the book of Samuel. Some have tried to say that you know, the author of Samuel is just trying to justify the Davidic line. You know, historically kind of trying to clean up and say, hey, you know, he really is, this really is the, the true line. But if it was justification, wouldn't you have stopped at chapter 10 in 2 Samuel? You might know what happens in 11 and 12. That's the disobedience of David. If you're trying to just justify your leader, that's not really a good thing to put in there. Nor is it good to trace out the rest of the book with how it destroyed his family and the sword never left his house. No, it's not justification. Because ultimately, there is a king above the king. There's a kingdom beyond the kingdom. And this is all being set up in Samuel. So... Remember, God opposes the proud and he exalts the humble. He, in, in spite of evil, he is at work and he's going to raise up his king. 
whoever that might be. Now, notice as we started, 1-1, there's three books in the Bible that begin with a death. Joshua, Judges, and 2 Samuel. In other words, Joshua begins after the death of Moses. uh, uh, Judges begins after the death of Joshua. And now 2 Samuel begins after the death of Saul. These three books and the three deaths also show us three different periods of Israel's history. One is coming out of Egypt, liberation from Egypt. Giving of the law with Moses and all of that. And then the conquest within Canaan under Joshua. And now the institution of the monarchy. We're moving quickly in these books, Joshua, Judges, and then into Samuel. And so the question kind of becomes, is there a future after Moses? Right? I mean, I mean, can you imagine having to step in after this guy? The friend of God who actually saw God? Had tablets that God himself wrote with his own finger on? And now you've got to follow that act? So, so the, but yes, there's Joshua. But then after Joshua, oh no, what's to happen? And of course we get into the debacle of the Judges period. But there's still hope. At the end of Judges, there's still hope. And now the question again is, well, what, what about after Saul? Like, here's the rise of the first king and he's already fallen. Is there hope? Yes. Who there's not hope in the text that we didn't get to read about is the Amalekite. If you ever read this text, he comes in probably somewhat giddy on the inside, I imagine. And he says, hey, I've been traveling through the night. I've got news. You ever have people in your life who want to be the first person to tell you of news? You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter what it is. I just want to be the first person to tell you. Apparently that was this guy. Um, he wants to be first. And, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. It's just, let's get it out there. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so everybody starts, you know, clicking on your social and sharing it. This guy shows up and he says, hey, I've got news for the king. <laughs> Remember now, he's an Amalekite. Who was David just destroying down in the south? <laughs> the Amalekites. Now this foreigner shows up. Who's an Amalekite? And he says, hey, I witnessed Saul and his sons, actually he says Jonathan, uh, dead on the mountain. And immediately David does what I do when Jessica tells me news. I say, how do you know that? Who did you hear that from? What was the source? And oftentimes I dismiss it quickly once I realize who the source is. But David says, who are you? What are you saying and who, what are you doing here? And the guy says, look. I was there fighting, and I saw Saul, and he had been mortally wounded. So I went ahead and finished the job because he wanted me to. He asked me to come over there. I went ahead and took his crown. I took his armlet, which were both regal signias. And he said, and I scooted out of there before the Philistines got there. And I've come all the way to here to present them to you, my king, my lord. You know, you can just imagine the scene here. He's, he's buttering it up, right? Lord, king. David says, okay, um, you go over and execute him. You shouldn't have touched the Lord's anointed. And here's David again, protecting the office that God instituted. The one that God chose, David says, you shouldn't have laid hands on him. Then, 
we get uh, this elegy, this, uh, this funerary text, this lamentation as the scripture calls it here, um, where he really, it's, it's, it's really moving how he talks about Saul. And you'd think that he really shouldn't be talking about Saul like this. Because in fact, Saul has been after him all of these chapters until 2 Samuel, and now he's talking good about him. Because I really think, and I don't think this is made up, I don't think he's just buttering him up because he's dead now. I really don't think David had animosity in his heart against Saul. I think this is a key text where we can say to each other, we need to be the same way as David in this way. Even if someone is against us, we must make sure that we are not contaminated with the sin that is against us. You say, well, it's okay for me to be mad at them because they were mad at me. Or they did this to me, and so I should retaliate in this way. And it sounds fair, doesn't it? But we as Christians don't operate on a fairness doctrine. And thanks be to God that we don't, because we would all deserve hell. But instead, we, like the God that we serve, operate on a grace doctrine. And so did David. I truly believe the text indicates to us, he did not hate Saul. He had forgiven him and, for, and still held the office of king in high regard. Now remember, Saul was unlike this in his life. I mean, think about it. Here's a foreigner that killed the king. Why should David care about a foreigner? You remember what Saul did, don't you? Uh, one of the priests, Ahimelech, he helped David in his life to escape from Saul. Saul comes into the town. He says, you helped David? He says, round up all the priests. It says that they were still in their priestly garments. And he got a guy named Doeg, was like dog, D-O-E-G, who was an Edomite. He said, he told his guys, his right-hand people, he's like, kill these people and their family. There were 85 priests still in their garments with their family. Kill them all. And they, nobody that was an Israelite would do it. Nobody that was a Jew would do it. And this guy, Doeg, he is like, I'll do it. David, Saul says, do it. And they murder his entire family. One of them escapes and ends up uh, helping David. But you see the difference? Saul readily would have used someone else's evil to his gain. David says, no, you should have never touched him. You expect me to be happy? That the Lord's anointed is dead? Even if he didn't like me and was chasing after me, he's still God's anointed. That's a different way to view things, isn't it? Holding an office that God ordained high, even if the person in there isn't doing well. I don't think David's lying in his lamentation. David's actually, if you look at the the personality of David and kind of do like a psychological study of David, he's not the kind of person to lie. He's not very very good at it because he kind of wears his emotions on his sleeve. You know, like you, you get the real David when you see David. You don't get the real Saul when you see Saul. Saul was a big man, 
but he saw himself as a little man. David was a smaller man, but was a big man because of his character. No, there was no celebration. Uh, There was an execution. And then he mourns for their death. Then death starts piling up. I think that's one of the things that grabbed me as I, as I re, you know, read this text and was studying these first four chapters in particular. Lots of death piling up. Notice this, chapter 1. Death of Saul and his sons. He had three sons that were end up killed. Only Jonathan is mentioned, which is really interesting. I'll let you come to a conclusion on that. But uh, Then the death of the Amalekite. Then in chapter 2, you get this civil war where Abner and Joab basically... Well, they don't like each other because they both work for a different administration. And they're the, they're the hatchet men, right? So, so Abner is, uh, is, is Saul's guy. Joab is David's guy. And they meet up and they say, hey, let's get the boys to play a little bit. What do you say? And literally, that's the term that she uses, play. And they end up killing each other in this game of death. It's basically a fight to the death. And then ends up, you know, uh, Abner is riding away and, you know, there's this guy that starts chasing him. And it's, a, it's one of the brothers of uh, Joab. And, and he says, it's, the Bible says that he was super quick, like fast, sprinting fast. And Joab turns around and says, hey, don't, look, there's another guy over there. You could easily take him. Don't, don't come after me. Don't, don't do that. The guy, it says was adamant, oh, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, kind of a young buck against an older guy, and Joab turns around, and it says, sticks him, sticks him right through the stomach, impels him, kills him, and uh, this is going to, of course, upset Joab now, uh, who's his arch nemesis anyway, and so there's bad blood between them, and by the time you get done with chapter two, there's 26 people dead, and then all of a sudden, at the very end, once the death toll between the duel of Joab and Abner gets finished, there's 405 people dead (laughs) in two chapters. Then in chapter 3, there's war between the house of David, we just read it, and the house of Saul. And then there's war between the house of Saul because there's civil war almost happening between the the authoritative factions. So Abner begins to transfer allegiance. He's like, hey... I want to make covenant with you, David. You're the man. You're the man now. And so David's like, okay, that's, that's great. And Joab doesn't like that. He's like, hang on now. If he comes in, is he going to be the commander-in-chief? Or am I? And so he tricks Abner. And he says, hey, let's have a private meeting. Just mano mano. You know, kills him. And there's more death. Um, 406 people by the end of three. Chapter four, Ishbosheth. <laughs> you can just imagine this poor guy. I mean, he's got a right-hand man who's already defected, partially because he, he basically said, hey, didn't you go into my father's concubine? He's like, that's what you're thinking about? He's like, I'm done with you. And now he, it says he loses heart in chapter four because he doesn't have any protection. So these two hit men, these two paramilitary... Again, foreigners, thugs, if you will, come and and assassinate Ishbosheth, who's now king of Israel. They, they've anointed him king of Israel. They assassinate him at 
lunchtime in the broad daylight. And so, um, again, <laughs> they come to David. I mean, they didn't learn from the Amalekite, apparently. They come to David and say, hey, we took care of that problem up north. We're just kind of some mercenaries walking through. Probably expecting a payout, right, for what they did. I mean, this was a roadblock for David, having a king up in the north when he was supposed to be king. I mean, God had anointed him king. David says, no, nope. He orders their execution, both of them. And then their corpses are mutilated. And then their torsos are impaled. So I know it's getting a little PG-13, rated R. I understand. Uh, we're moving quickly through it. You can read it for yourself. But there's 409 people dead by the time chapter 4 ends. But there's now no more roadblocks in the way. And the only people that David has killed are these foreigners who are basically killing off his roadblocks to power. Notice, though, that David, and this is, I think, the principle of all this killing and all this, this kind of story here of this transition of power. David is not grasping for power. This is something that makes him have a heart after God, isn't it? Jesus doesn't grasp at power. He humbles himself, which comes back to that theme that's interwoven in Samuel that God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. So every person that we've talked about that's been executed was trying to grab at power and bring it to the powerhouse guy. Hey, I made you king, baby. You know what I mean? You've got to remember me because I'm the one who brought you the crown, Lord, sir. No. No, you're getting no fame. Just a spear. I think there's a principle for us that we are not to grasp, but instead to receive. David, this is, this is nuts because... He already had been anointed way back in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. The first season. He's anointed there. And yet, he hasn't grabbed for power. Had two opportunities to kill Saul. Did not do it. And even in Saul's death, and by the way, that Amalekite was lying of all things. The guy that said he killed Saul, he didn't even do that. According to the text, he made it up. It cost him his life because he lied, trying to grasp at power. We must not be, as Christians, the type to grasp for power, but to receive from God. I really get this image of in the garden, they reached out. It says she reached out for the fruit and saw that it was good. It wasn't good, but she saw that it was good. And then what do we do? We share it with someone else. We've been doing it ever since. <laughs> ever, ever since the garden, we've been doing it. We reach out and say, this is the way I'm going to do it. This is my way. How many of us, like David in chapter 2 that we read, how many of us would inquire of the Lord? In other words, he hears of Saul's death. The house of Saul is in shambles. He doesn't then say, okay, I'm the man. Where's the oil? Let's do this again in public, not in private. 
He doesn't do that. He says, Lord, what should I do? And it's interesting what God tells him. Four times go, the, the term up is used in chapter 2. Go up. He's ascending. But in God's timing. He's not forcing it. If you know what God wants you to do, still we can sin by grasping at that. I'm, I'm telling you, sin runs deep, doesn't it? I think that's part of what these historical books show to us. I mean, it's the same way in, in, the, in the movies you watch, in the, in the stories, in the, in the sitcoms, in the, the uh, what do you call them? Episodes on uh, Netflix, series, yes, TV series. That's what I was looking for. Thank you. I knew I'd get some help eventually. Um, we see ourselves in that, and, and I hope that you're seeing yourself or someone that you love in this just because you have an enemy doesn't mean it's okay to have hate in your heart. Doesn't make it okay. You got to be okay here. It's, it's not even if they're in the wrong. My dad used to always say, "It's better to be righteous than right." But many of us want to want to do this thing. I told you so. I to- why? Because we're proud. That's why. And God opposes the proud, exalts the humble. It's fascinating, the, what I would call interchange in the four chapters here. There's death, weeping. Death, no weeping, chapter 2. Chapter 3, death and weeping. Chapter 4, death and no weeping. It's fascinating how the writer puts in these, uh, these rhythms. David didn't force the will of God. David was patient. David was humble. He didn't grasp for power like Saul or like us. He humbled himself. Recently, again, this happened to me, so I want to share it. In my garage, a bird flew in. And it got up stairs where we have this, what I call the upper room now. And I was trying to get it out. I mean, I, I walk up there and just like, you know, and you, I mean, you, you know, kind of nerve-wracking. It's like, whoa, hey, what's, what's going on, buddy? He's like hitting everything up there and trying to fly out. And, you know, there's six windows up there, but obviously he can't get out of those. Four of them I can't open. And so I close the windows first and the... Um, the ones that don't open. And then the ones that do open on the sides, I opened them. But he still wouldn't get out. Why? Because a bird, I'm telling you, when he gets in trouble, he flies up. That's why. And, and it's just like the Lord reminded me again. He's like, remember the bird that got caught in your other garage? He would never get out because he was unwilling to go down. All he had to do, literally, just that far and he could have been out. But he kept going up. And, and, and it's like the Lord says to me, you do the same thing. You're bumping around on all this stuff. All you've got to do is humble yourself. And at the right time, I will exalt you. This is not about you and your prestige. Your reputation. It's my reputation in you. And finally... 
I closed all those other windows. He only had, he saw light, <laughs> which is nothing. The Lord's like, hey, fly to the light, you know, like uh, lower yourself and then fly to the light. And he's out, you know. And he did it again the next day. And the Lord's like, yeah, that's you also. Thanks, I'm a bird. There's no easy way. It's always going to require a cross. That's the heart of God. Isn't it? There's no other way but a cross. We must die to ourselves. We must be humbled. God himself become man, naked, dying on a cross. That's humility. And he's been exalted, the scripture says, (laughs) with a name that is above all names. That at the name of Jesus, notice this again, every knee will bow and every tongue confess what? That he is Lord. Brothers and sisters, you'll either do it now or you'll do it later. But just as those executions happened because it was done the wrong way, so too there will be executed on the last day judgment. And it, hurt, it physically hurts me to know that some I love are still under the judgment of God. We don't have to be anymore. That's the good news. He's made a way to avert judgment if we'll bend the knee. What area of our life are we unwilling to let go of? That's what he wants. That's what's got to be crucified. You say, surely not that, surely that. Let's move forward with our relationship with Jesus by bending our knee, humbling ourselves today, dying to ourselves so that we can follow the living God. We too can be like David and have a heart after God. And I pray that for you, I pray that for me today, this week, for eternity. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.